Isabel, I don't know what your plans are after college. Well, we got some great medical institutions here. You know that, right? Duke University, UNC Hospital, and Bethel Christian Center. So I don't know what your plans are. But I'm praying, I'm going to set some other people to pray and that God brings you back here. Okay? So we'll see if you can outpray us. We really thank you so much for that this morning. It's just a blessing to watch young people who have grown up in our fellowship just, just grow into young adults who love God and use their talents for the Lord. We have a lot of that. And I, I can't think of anything better than to invest in than our young people. And so for those who received the scholarships, congratulations. I want to thank Pastor Don for his many, many years of working that through the fellowship. The fellowship has given out over a million dollars, I think, in scholarships to young people. And a few years ago, Pastor, it was, uh, it was laid on the pastor's heart, let's start giving money from Bethel. And so we want to see young people who love God and are ready to go out into the world and make a mark uh, in their marketplace or wherever they work to have some financial assistance. And so we do that here. And much of that's because of your faithfulness in giving. And so to all the recipients of the scholarships, uh, let me say congratulations. Uh, there's nothing more we can guard than our children, that we can invest in in our children. And I will say that if there's ever been a time we need to guard our children, it's today. They're under attack, church. And for those of you who have young people, particularly if you're, you have young people maybe going into the private, I mean, to the per, uh, public schools, I think you know that. And I don't want to belabor that. But we have two people with us this morning, Jim and Laura. Would you guys stand up for so everybody can take a look at you, see who you are? <laughs> okay, the reason I asked Jim and Laura to stand, uh, God placed it on their heart. They're both educators, have been. Uh, up in the western part of the state. God put it on their heart to come to uh, uh, here to Durham. They've purchased a piece of property out in Bahama. Did it used to be a school or was it a church? As a school at one time. They started a private Christian school called Guardian Christian Academy. They're going to start enrolling students hopefully this September. And it's ages three to four through the second grade. Did I get that right? Uh, whether you know it or not, I didn't know this, but now the, the legislature has passed the voucher, some of the voucher programs. That's why voting and being a part of what's happening is important for us. So now you will be able to take some voucher money and potentially use it for these private schools, Christian schools, where they won't teach your children things that are contrary to the scriptures, where they won't push on them things that are, are opposed to the things of God. So if you would like to talk to them, uh, see them after the service. They have some of these flyers. You can talk to them. Mom, dad, grandma, granddad, and they will get you some information. Along that note, one of the things that's been on my heart through this uh, here in the near future, maybe on a Wednesday night, we may have a, a, a workshop on homeschooling. I didn't homeschool um, my kids, but several in our church have, and I think you're going to see that grow a little bit. Uh, Brother Matt and Sister Ann have homeschooled. Melissa has homeschooled. And so we might have that and have some questions, because I wouldn't even know where to start if I wanted to do that. What, how do I do this? And so those are some of the things we'll be having coming up in the future. But I, I didn't, wanna, didn't want to miss them, and I, if you'd like to get a little more information from them, uh, please do. Lastly, uh, I, I, don't, I don't like to presume on your generosity, and this is a, this is a generous and a giving church. But how many of you have happened to have heard about a church that was planted in downtown Durham a few years ago by the name of Pioneer? Anybody? Okay. All right. And I call it a church. That's what it was launched at. It's become more of an outreach and a ministry. 
and I want to introduce you to it. And as a matter of fact, I thought maybe once again in the future, uh, all of you are closer to my age, some of you younger, some of you older, but I think we all remember field trips. And maybe we'll get both vans out there and take a field trip one Wednesday night to Pioneer and introduce you to that ministry. But I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but in essence, what happened, they were sent there by the United Methodist Church. The, the lead pastor's name is Daniel. I can't, I know his life's name is something like Cherie. I, I know I'm mispronouncing that. I have a small child, young couple. And they went down there. They were launched by the United Methodist Church. They start this outreach, particularly to the LGBTQ community. Uh, a couple comes in, same-sex couple, wants them to marry them. They said, you know, listen, we, we, we want to minister here, but, but we believe in the biblical definition of marriage. And literally all hell broke loose. Uh, that was on the news. It was running the Indy. Uh, some of us from DMIP went and visited with them to see the weight of the world on this young man, this young couple's shoulders of what they had been through. Uh, the protest, the screaming, the hollering. The United Methodist Church decided to disaffiliate from them actually sent a letter apologizing that they had ever launched them down there. And many of the radical groups got that, blew it up, and stuck it on their doors and their windows to how they'd been disaffiliated. Well, the Wesleyans picked them up. If that sounds familiar, the, the revival that broke out in Asbury College is a, was a Wesleyan university. Well, now, uh, we, he came, Brother Daniel came to DMIP recently. We asked him how things were going. He said things have finally died down a little bit. And because they, they want to approach that, that ministry with a heart of love. And i got to tell you, church, when I heard what he, when he gave his testimony and what he had been through, and I saw the weariness on his face, I thought, man, I felt like a sissy Christian. I did. I was like, I've never faced anything like that. What would I have done? And i got to tell you, sometimes I think I'd have packed my stuff and went home. Said, you can have it. But they didn't. And they said, you know, this is not what we came here for. We came here to share Christ, and we didn't come here to be a flashpoint but they were. And they said they knew that God had sent them there and they, they wanted to stay there and they wanted to minister and they wanted to minister their, to those folks, to that group. And they've made some inroads. They finally got them to quit shouting. You know, you know we can get a lot done when we quit shouting at each other and start talking to each other. Well, the shouting finally stopped. They finally got them to come in, sit around the table and talk with them, share their heart, share their faith, share their Lord, and some, some walls have started to break down. Well, they've got to sign their lease. They've, they've been subleasing, so now they have to sign the lease if they, if they intend to stay. And they said it's going to be a bit of a financial challenge for them. And when he shared that with us at DMIP, the first scripture that came to mind was when Paul, uh, in, in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he was taking up an offering for the Jerusalem church that was a, not a wealthy church. They didn't have much. And he praised the churches of Macedonia for giving out of their poverty. They didn't have much, but they gave. And then he challenged the Corinthian church who had an abundance to give, to take an offering to this church in Jerusalem. And this is what it said in 2 Corinthians 8, 14. He said, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack that there may be equality. I know Pastor John just recently took up a, an offering for, for a ministry here, the Meet Me at the Bridge, a wonderful ministry. But I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. And if you are so inclined, if you'd like to give something toward this, Brother Michael has, has established quite a relationship with Pastor Daniel down there. And what I would like for uh, Brother Michael to be able to do is to meet with him this week and give him a check and say, this is from our church to your church. 
because you have been planted in a place that you have influence, you've been planted to do an outreach that maybe we can't do, your church is struggling right now, you all have been so faithful, so our church is blessed financially, so we want to bless you. So I'm going to pray. You can, you can give that through the app if you'd like. Sister Teresa, I did it, and I did it through missions. So if you want to do it through the app and put missions, anything that comes in today will go to that. Uh, Pastor Dan has said we can supplement it out of our missions fund, but I just want to bless this church. Uh, they've been through things that we haven't been through. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for their faithfulness. Lord, thank you for Pioneers Church. God, I pray blessings on them. Lord, I pray fruit from their ministry. I pray that many will come in, Lord, and hear the gospel, Lord, and see, God, that it is your loving kindness that draws people to repentance, not, not screaming, not hollering, Lord, your loving kindness. I thank you for a couple who would stand in the fire and stand on the truth of your word. So I've asked you to bless this offering and bless Pioneers Church and the remainder of our service. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for your generosity, uh, Bethel. This has always been a giving church. We're not a large congregation, but you, you are just so, so faithful in your giving. I want to thank you for that. So this morning, we're going to continue into our uh, study of the book of James. And last week, I just did an overview of the book. Talked a little bit about the book of James. James sometimes referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, Jack Hayford says that the book of James is a book of duty, over doctrine. Of the 108 verses in the book of James, there are 54 clear commands. The author, the author was James. He was the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of Jude. He didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and he was stoned to death in A.D. 62. The book is a very practical book. It's one of the books I challenge people to read in a, during a witnessing encounter because it talks so much about things that are relevant to, to living as a believer today. Things like trials and suffering. Things like how we treat people. Works. James' book is heavy on this idea of works, of doing something with our faith. How we deal with sin. Do we control our tongue, our attitudes toward money and the power of prayer? And I opened up with James 1.1. James said, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And I spent some time on that word bondservant, which literally means slave. And we looked at the similarities between our salvation and that of a slave. But however, the slave, that, ha that word has such a negative connotation to it because of the the brutality of, of American slavery and that blight on our society. But nevertheless, a slave was bought, and we've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. A slave was under the control of their master, and we're to be under the control of Jesus. And a slave is disciplined by his master. And Paul used this analogy between being a slave to something many times in the book of Romans, and then we looked at the fact that we're a slave to one of two things. We're either a slave to sin or we're a slave to righteousness. There is really no in-between. But this morning we'll get right into the book of James. And as I have um, been in this position now for a little over seven months, oftentimes people will ask me, they'll say, what's different about being the lead pastor? Is anything harder about it? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is I will tell you is that Sundays roll around quick. 
From the time I finish today, I got to be ready next Sunday. I've been asked before, and I talked with Pastor Don and some others, how long do you spend on preparing these services, on these sermons? I've actually, actually Googled a little bit, and I'm in within the range anywhere from 12 to 20 hours that I will spend on what I will give you for about 35 minutes. Uh, but that's not what has really been the different in being in this lead position. The lead position is that I feel your hurt and your burdens a little more than I used to. As leaders of, of this church, we all feel the burden. And even as believers, the Bible says we're to bear each other's burdens. We're supposed to hurt when another one hurts. I know many of you here are parents. And if you've ever experienced your child hurting, hurting emotionally, maybe from a breakup, maybe from uh, a, a physical hurt, you almost feel that in your body. You almost hurt as bad as they do because it's hard to watch someone that you love hurt and suffer. And that has been, I have felt that a little bit more when I get a phone call that says, you know, Brother Matt has, a, has another appointment and I begin to worry about what is going to come out. And Sister Josie, we find out she's dealing with cancer and I stop by and see him. And Sister Pam, and, and I could go all the way through. It, it weighs on me a little bit more. I carry it a little bit more. And I know many of you do. But as I thought through this, and as I was thinking about this, you know, Jesus was referred to as a man of sorrows. And I never really knew what that meant. That never really meant a whole lot to me until I thought about this. And I thought for a moment that when Jesus was on this earth, he bore in his body every hurt, every pain, every sin, every struggle, every doubt, and every fear that all of mankind would carry. Can you imagine that? I know how that makes me feel. I know how that makes me feel when I get that news. He carried it for all of mankind. No wonder he had to get along with his father. He carried that. He carried it for you, and he carried it for me. Only God himself could do that. Only God himself could carry that type of weight. But there's no doubt that as we look at how James opens, that James was a pastor told you he had been a pastor in the Jerusalem church, that he opens up with talking to his readers about trials and suffering. Because I imagine that the same was true of James. Anyone who stands in a church as a leader, who stands behind a pulpit, if they don't care and hurt for their people, they're in the wrong position. This is the most, it's not about glory, it's not about fame, it's not about all the, it is about caring for people and guiding people even when they're in the wrong, coming along beside them to counsel them and correct them, but done in the right way. And that's what James does. He opens this letter with how to deal with trials. And so the title of the sermon this morning is From Trial to Triumph. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to James chapter 1, and I'll be reading through verses, reading verses 2 through 11. James 1, verses 2 through 11. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind." 
For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you how relevant it is today. I thank you that I can sit down and in this five chapters, I can read your word. I can be comforted and I can be convicted. And so I pray, God, that you use me today to comfort where they need comfort and convict, Lord, where we need conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. As far as Christ, the scripture is clear that we're not exempt from the trials of life. I don't care what Joel Osteen says, you may, you're not always going to have your best life now. It's not always easy to be a follower of the Lord. As a matter of fact, I see it getting more and more complicated and more and more difficult. We are not exempt from the trials of life. The difference is how we deal with them and what we learn from them. One of the strangest statements in the entire Bible to me is, count it all joy when trials come. I've mentioned a few in here already, and there's several others that I've seen go through major trials of life. I have yet to see one when the, when the information comes or when the trial comes, jumping up doing that little sidekick saying, hey, hey, I'm just so happy that this trial has come. That would be foolishness. And that's not what James means. And for those of you who've been through that, you know that's not how you felt when that came to you. This morning we'll dive a bit deeper into this statement and see how this is indeed possible. In the first chapter of James, we see there are two types of trials. Two types of trials. External trials and internal trials. Today we'll deal with the external trials. And James gives three commands to deal with the external trials. So if you've got your bulletin and you've got your notes section, you can write this word. You can write count, count. And put a slash in it if you want and put consider and leave some space. You can write no. We need to know some things when we come into the trials. And you can leave some space. And then write ask, ask. James tells us to count or consider. He tells us to know certain things and he tells us to ask. What do we count or consider? It says in verse 2, it says, my brethren, that's us, that's me, that's you, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count. A better word there is to consider it. Even in some studying this morning, it even said, one of the commentaries I read in the Greek said, it even said, think about it. I haven't faced a major trial of life where I've been told by the doctor, you've got serious cancer, or I've gotten a call said, you're loved one's been involved in an accident or you've lost a loved one. Some of you have been through those things. And so I can only imagine that when you get that call, the first reaction is, is, is panic. It's, oh gosh. That's, that's a natural human reaction. The closest thing that I have to that several years ago in no ways compares to what some of you have been through, I had a big old basal cell cancer on my nose. And I went in and the, the doctor took it and he cut and he said, and, and when I went in, I was scared to death. And the nurse said, have you been Googling? The worst thing we can do when you get a trial of life, get information, is Google. Okay? We're going to ask somebody, but it's not going to be Google. Because you're going to get the worst case scenarios. 
But that's not the time to make decisions. That's not time. The time to consider it, the time to evaluate it, is once you get outside of the initial shock. I would, would you say that's true, Brother Mike? I mean, the initial shock is, oh, I, I'm not going to make it through this. I'm going to lose my, my loved one. I, I, I'm not, God, and, and we begin to doubt and we begin to worry. That, that's what I would do. I did then. They're going to cut my nose off. But that's not the time to make those decisions. You got to get outside that initial shock. You got to consider some things. A few things you have to consider. Number one, who God is. Who God is. Number two, who you are in Christ. A son and a daughter of the Most High God, with which what is impossible with man is possible with Him. Those are the things you have to start considering. What God is capable of. What God is capable of. And what He may show you in this. What He just might show you in this. Those are the things, once you get outside the initial shock, that you have to consider. And that's what brings, after you come through the trial, which we'll talk about that a little bit more, it's not till you've come through it, it's not till God's seen you through it, that you begin to see the joy that was in it. That you begin to experience the joys that it brought you through it. And he says, when you fall into trials. He don't say if. He says, when. Trials are coming. They're coming. And if I, I got to tell you, I've told you I haven't never faced what I consider a major trial in my life, but I know it's coming. And that's why every time I go to the doctor, and this is, this is not real faith, this is some fear, and I, I get them blood tests back like all you do, and the first thing I do is open them up, and I start looking at them. What's my numbers this year? What's my numbers this year? Because I'm wondering when that trial of life is coming to me. Because they come. And they come in various ways. You know, the Greek word that's used there for that is, the Greek verb that's used in that area of falling into trials is the same verb that's used when it talks about the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, the man went down to Jerusalem to Jericho, and the Bible says he fell into the hands of robbers. Same Greek verb. It's the same verb that's used when Paul was in his shipwreck. They're going along about life. Everything's going okay. And bang, something happens. I've seen that experience. I've had that experience many times to see people go through that in my former profession. When I would go up on a car accident where someone had been injured or killed, and I'm like, this morning, they got up just like any other morning, brushed their teeth, put their clothes on, not knowing that today was the last day they would spend on this earth. It happens, church. That's why we have to consider today that today is the day of salvation. And if you're here today, you don't know what tomorrow holds for you. And I don't necessarily think fear is always the best driver to draw someone to the Lord, but I will tell you, those things happen. And they happen just like that. And they happen to the believer. They happen to the believer when they come he says they're various when you fall into various trials most trials are the what I call the everyday grind of life because we're human you know life is life itself is difficult isn't it you get up in the morning you try you get out to your work you're worried about your job or how you're going to pay your bills you're worried about your children we talked about the kids and the schools all these things go through our mind and life can be a grind those are trials because we're simply human. 
And we're going to deal with those things. Some trials come, and more and more often now, because we're Christians. There used to be a time that, in, in many years ago, when Pastor Don first started preaching and other preachers, they talked about this. They knew it was coming. Church, we're seeing it. We're on the cusp of it. We're seeing Americans be persecuted. Not, not, unface, not, not defriended on Facebook. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having to make a choice between their careers and their faith. The freedom of speech, the freedom of religion that I think is under attack. Some, for, some forms of speech and some religions. Mostly those of us who claim the name of Christ and simply want to live that. It's under attack like never before. Those trials come. And quite frankly, this audience that James is writing to, and also that Peter wrote to, I, I told you to read First Peter in conjunction with this, that's what they were. They were, persecu- they were persecuted Christians. They were people who were under attack because of their faith, because of who they decided to follow and worship. Some trials are more serious in nature, such as sickness, death, or death of a loved one. It's hard for me to see that. It's hard to come alongside someone like that. I, don't, I wish I could change it. I wish I could go into a hospital room or visit someone and, and pray and, and God just take it all away. But oftentimes that's not what happens. It's just a time to walk with them, to love them, and to understand that those trials do come to us. And it's hard for me sometimes to hear people, and I hear this oftentimes, I don't, I don't know why this is happening to me. But we're all under the curse. I wish we would never get sick. I wish we would never have a struggle in life. I wish our loved ones would never die. But they do. But there's a day coming that we're not. One day we're going to breathe the breath of heaven. One day we're going to see him face to face. He's going to wipe away the tears and all the trials will have been worth it. We're not exempt from the trials. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. And here's the thing. I think sometimes when we come into the trials, we're like, God, why is this happening? I cannot believe this is happening to me. I've been faithful. I've done this. I've done that. Peter deals with this in 1 Peter 12, 4, 12 through 14. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fire trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. It's not strange, church. When we face a trial of life, it's not strange. They happen. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings. And particularly if you get tried for your faith and you decide to make a stand, you rejoice in that, that you're partaking in the sufferings of Christ. That when His glory is revealed, that you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, and we have many today that are reproached for that, laughed at, you know, ridiculed. If that happens to you, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, on the ones that blaspheme you, he is blasphemed. They're blaspheming your Lord. But on your part, when you stand firm, When you say, I won't compromise in this, I won't do this, I won't do that, not because I hate you, I love you, but because I trust Christ, my trust is in Him, I will not sacrifice this thing. You know what happens? It says, on your part, He is glorified. 
people look at you and say, this guy is either crazy or he really believes this stuff. Well, I really believe it, church. I believe it with all my heart. And if my time of testing comes, I want to stand, I want to stand firm. I want to stand firm. Count. Consider it. And then he says no. Know a couple things. One, know that trials have a purpose. Know that there is a purpose in your trials. Verse 4 says this, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We face the trials with what we know, not how we feel. Because I have a, I have a, a strong suspicion that when the trial of life first hits, I'm not going to feel too good. I'm gonna, my, my faith is going to be way down here. I'm going to be struggling. I'm not going to know what the answers are. But then I have to go on what I know, not on what I feel. And what do I know? What do I know? One, I know this. I know God is with us. I know he said he would never leave us and he would never forsake us. That's a promise of his. He's with you in that. It comes from intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. After you get through that initial shock, that's when, you start, that's when you start drawing on that intimacy that you have had with him. And church, that intimacy is built in the good times. It's built in the good times. There's not an athlete, there's not an a, 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 a athlete, a professional athlete or anyone else that trains for their job the day they're about to go out and go into battle. There's not a police officer that does that. There's not a, a soldier that does that. There's not an athlete that does that. They train themselves ready, preparing for the day of action. That's what we have to do. We have to be in his presence, be in his word, be amongst his people when the times of good. James' brother Jude said, build yourself up in the most holy of faith so that when that trial comes, you have intimacy with the Lord. You sense his presence with you. I know I see some of you nodding. I know you have felt this. And I can talk about it till I'm blue in the face, and the people who've done it can talk about it blue in the face. But you have to experience it. You have to know what it is to sense the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit when the trial comes. You have to know that. And then you have to know that there is a other side of the trial. You're coming through this. You're coming through it. He's going to see you through this. There's another side to it. That's part of what allowed Jesus to endure the cross. I shared this a couple Friday nights ago at communion. Jesus knew there was an other side to that cross. He didn't have to stay there. He didn't have to do that. He could have called legions of angels to come and rescue him. Why did he do it? Why did he stay on that cross? Look at Hebrews 12 and 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. You think somebody was counting it all joy? Jesus was counting. He knew there's something set before me that's going to allow me to endure that cross. What was set before him? And this is what I shared with the congregation on a Friday night. First of what was set before him was he knew he was going to crush the head of Satan. He had been prophesied, I'm going to come what I came to do. I'm going to destroy the works of the devil. I'm going to return things back to the way my father intended them to be. And for that joy, he endured the cross. He endured the cross to stay obedient to his father. Obedience even unto death on that cross. 
And then you want to hear something crazy? I think what really, the joy that really was set before him was knowing that one day, this little boy named Larry Curtis Smith, and you could put your name there, would come down to an altar at East Durham Church of God and bend his knee and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he would save me. And that, that joy kept him on that cross. And that joy kept him on the cross for you and you and you if you've put your trust in him. He endured that cross. Despising the shame, now he has sat down at the right hand and the throne of God. There is an other side to your trial. Also, we can know that trials result in some things. They result in some things. One thing it results in is revealing the genuineness of our faith. You're going to find out real fast whether, what people are in this for when it gets tested. It's easy to come in and follow the Lord and do all the things when there's not a trial of life. We have so many people come into church today because a trial is hit. I'll deal with that a little bit more in a minute. But what about when the trial hits and you've been trusting in God? It's going to reveal your faith. It's going to reveal what you're even in this for. And I'm afraid to say that I think a lot of people in the American church today, when the trial does come, particularly if it comes because they're Christian, are going to say, whoa, I didn't sign up for that. No, you, no. If it, once this costs me anything, it costs me my job, it costs me some money, it costs me my friends, it costs me popularity, I'm out. It's what James says, it's going to test the genuineness of our faith. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. Peter says this, In this you greatly rejoice. What he's telling them they greatly rejoice in is the fact that we're saved, the fact that heaven is our home, and that we have Christ as our Savior. We rejoice in that, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. There's that term again, various trials. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory in the revelation of Jesus Christ. you got a reward coming. And it may not be easy, and we may have to walk through some hard things, but you got a reward coming. I wrote in my notes, it's going to be time more than ever for some even-if faith. Even-if faith. That's what the three Hebrew boys had. The king brought him in. He got himself a big statue. And he says, I want everybody to bow to my statue. And those three Hebrew boys today, if you don't, you're going to the fiery furnace. See, we like that story. I like that story because I know how it ends. But they don't. They didn't know how this thing ended. They just trusted God. And they said, bless you, old king. They, they honored the king. I talked last week. I said, I didn't care much for the... Donald Trump's personality, I don't. But I don't care much for Joe Biden's policies. And when, when, the, when the election times comes, I'm going to do everything I can to let my voice be heard and, and work to vote him out of office. That's what we do in this country. Now, you'll do with your conscience what you do. But I'm still going to honor him as the president. If I'm going to criticize him, I'm going to pray for him. And oftentimes in that office and oftentimes at DMIP, we pray for all of our leaders. We're called to pray for our leaders, whether we agree with them or not. But those three Hebrew boys said, bless you, old king. Our God is able to deliver us. 
But even if he does not, we ain't bowing. That's what he said. We ain't bowing. And church, I want you to get in your mind that statement because I think that's coming. Okay, we may not go to a fiery furnace, but there's going to be some, there's going to be some hard times if you don't bow to certain things. If you won't affirm certain things. Some of you are seeing it already in your work, the, the, the beginnings of it in your workplace. I was. I love people, all people. But that God has commanded me in certain things, and I won't compromise on it. And what they do? They threw them in the furnace. What happened? I love the way it ended, but there's no guarantee that's the way it'll end for us. The king walks in. He looks in that furnace. Didn't we put three people in there? There's four people in there. And, and Jesus himself was in that furnace and delivered them. They didn't know that's how that was going to turn out. I don't know how it's going to turn out for you, but we're coming out on the other side. We're coming out on the other side. And what does it do? It produces patience and it makes us perfect and complete. We have to know that God is with us. There's the other side of the trial. It reveals our, whether our faith is genuine or not and it produces patience, making us perfect and complete. Not perfect in that sinless. It matures us. It matures a trial will mature you. It will mature you. I found this little uh, uh, poem. I heard it some time back, and I was able to find it by Robert Browning Hamilton. And it says this. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. Ne'er a word, said she, but all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And sometimes it's in the trial, sometimes it's in the battle, sometimes it's in the sorrow that you sense the presence of God like you've never sensed it before. And some of you have experienced that. As a matter of fact, this morning, if you're here this morning, because I want all of our congregation to see this, and you've walked through a significant trial of life, you've faced physical sickness, you've, you've faced the death of a loved one, you have faced something that has really tried your faith, and you learned something in it, God shaped you in it somehow, on the other side of the trial, you can look back on it and see that God was faithful, I want you to stand up. Look, God is faithful. And I would imagine at some point in the, in the heat of the battle, you didn't feel that way. But when it's over, you know God's faithful. You know the power of God. You know how He can mold and shape you. You can sit down. Thank you so much. And for those of you who didn't stand, and I, I wouldn't have stand, stood, but thank God I can look at the, all these other people. And here's what I can do. When I'm facing that trial, I can go see someone and say, I need somebody to talk to who's walked this walk. And I can see that God is faithful. Count, know, and finally, ask. Ask. Verses 5 through 8 says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let, the man ask, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Who are we to ask? Ask Dr. Phil. Ask your friends on Facebook. 
Ask some pagan guy who don't even follow the Lord. Is that who we ask? We ask God. Spend time with the Lord. Pray. Not when the battles hit. Pray when times are good. Build yourself up in the most holy faith when times are good. But then when it hits you, ask God for wisdom because you're going to have questions. God, why is this happening now? I will have those. I think all of you have had those. I know some of you have had those because I've talked to you. That's when you go to God and say, God, help me. God, give me wisdom to walk through this. Give me wisdom to make good decisions in this. Give me wisdom what I should do and should not do. And the Bible says he will do that, and he doesn't do, do it with shaming. I think sometimes as Christians, and I want to get into the, to, to the doubting part, we think, well, if I had enough faith, if I just had enough faith, if I just had enough faith, that, that's a lie. That's, that's to make you think that you don't have faith. That's Satan in your ear. Sometimes we do lack in our faith. I do. And that's why James moves into this idea of the double-minded man. And every time, in times past when I've read that, before I really studied this scripture, I always thought, well, Lord, I might as well not ask for anything because sometimes I doubt. There's been times, I'll tell you, church, there's been times in this altar right here when we were praying for healing because we believe God still heals. We're praying for deliverance because we believe God still delivers. That I just kind of sat back in the back because I was just not in a good place spiritually. I was like, I don't need to do that right now. God, do you heal? God, do you set free? Now, am I the only one who asks those questions sometimes? Am I a double-minded, double-minded man that's going to get nothing from God? No. Who James is referring to here, it's not that person. It says, ask out of faith. Ask out of faith. See, what happens, who he's referring to there is those people, when the trial of life hits, they have no intention of having any intimacy with God, never have, but when the trial of life hits, I'll run into the church, and I'll ask God to solve my problem, and if he don't solve my problem, I'll walk right back out and say, there ain't nothing to it. He might. God might solve the problem. I don't know. But there's no intimacy with God. They don't come in faith. They come demanding. They come demanding of God. I'm not going to demand God do anything for me. I'm going to come in humility to ask him. That's the double-minded man he's referring to. People who come seeking God in a time of trouble, with no interest in who God is, no interest in a real personal relationship with Him, they're only interested in solving their problem at the time. That's the double-minded man. And the Bible says he should expect to receive nothing from God. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward. I'm going to finish with um, verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother glory in exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat that it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. You know, a real external trial can be the trial of money. If, 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 if you're struggling financially, that is a real trial. If you're struggling to pay your bills, that can weigh on you. But James says to that person, stay faithful. Amen. Stay faithful to God. If you're struggling financially, stay faithful to God. He'll exalt you in due time.
And then to the rich believer, he says, be careful. Be careful. Where's your heart? Where's your heart in that? Jesus talked a lot about money and possessions because it can take first place. It can take first place. If you're here this morning, I'm going to ask you, everyone, if you will, to stand. What I want to do this morning, first thing, is if you're here this morning, you've never accepted the Lord as your Savior. And you felt the pull and the tug of the Holy Spirit in your heart this morning. Come down. Come down and let us pray with you. Let us walk you through the prayer of salvation and what it means to be a follower of Christ.